Dreaming of a better sleep? Tossing and turning is not your destiny. And Ollie is here to help. Ollie invites you to sink into sweet, sweet slumber to improve your mental and physical health and overall wellness. More than just melatonin, Ollie's ingredients help you unwind your mind for a delightfully dreamy drift off. Sleep is on the way at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. Welcome to episode 114 of the Way of Improvement Leads Home podcast. As always, we are glad you have joined us. In 1838, a group of America's most prominent Catholic priests sold 272 enslaved people to save their largest mission project, what is now Georgetown University. Our guest today, New York Times writer and journalism professor Rachel Swarns is the author of The 272, The Families Who Were Enslaved and Sold to Build the American Catholic Church. Swarns follows one family, the Mahonies, through nearly two centuries of indentured servanthood and enslavement to uncover the harrowing story of the origins of the Catholic Church in the United States. The story begins, and I'm quoting here partly from the book Dust Jacket, with Anne Joyce, a free Black woman and the matriarch of the Mahoney family. Joyce sailed to Maryland in the late 1600s as an indentured servant, but her contract was burned and her freedom stolen. Her descendants, who were enslaved by Jesuit priests, passed down the story of that broken promise for centuries. One of those descendants, Harry Mahoney, saved lives and the church's money in the War of 1812, but his children, Louisa and Anna, were put up for sale in 1838. One daughter, Louisa, managed to escape, but the other, Anna, was sold and shipped to Louisiana. Their descendants would remain apart until Swarn's reporting in the New York Times finally reunited them. They would go on to join other descendants of the 272 to press Georgetown University and the Catholic Church to make amends, prodding those institutions to break new ground in the movement for reparations and reconciliation in America. Rachel will be with us in a moment to tell us more about this tragic story. But first, let's take care of some business. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. 
In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. The Way of Improvement Leads Home podcast is a member of the Recorded History Podcast Network. When you get a chance, head over to recordedhistory.net to check out some of our fellow network podcasts. This free podcast is brought to you through the members of Current, an online journal of commentary and opinion that provides daily reflection on contemporary culture, politics, and ideas. We keep all of this going by your generous financial donations. If you like what you read or hear at Current and want to support our work, that includes this podcast, our daily opinion features, the Way of Improvement Leads Home blog, our new blog, The Arena, and our narrative podcast on the history of evangelicals and politics. And head over to currenthub.com and click the red support button. The best way to spread the word about the podcast is to tell a friend. You can follow us on Twitter, or is it X now? At T-W-O-I-L-H podcast. You can follow me over at the Elon Musk site at John Fia One. I am also on threads at John Fia One. Or you can follow us on Twitter or on threads at current underscore pub one. We're also on Facebook and Instagram. If you like an episode, give us a share or a retweet. And please, please, please consider a positive review on Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Stitcher, Podbean, Spotify. We are on all of these platforms. Or, of course, wherever you get your podcasts. Rachel L. Swarns is a professor of journalism at New York University and a contributing writer for the New York Times. She is the author of American Tapestry, the story of the black, white, and multiracial ancestors of Michelle Obama. And she is the co-author of Unseen, Unpublished Black History from the New York Times Photo Archives. Her work has been recognized and supported by the National Endowment for the Humanities, the Ford Foundation, the Biographer International Organization, the Leon Levy Center for Biography, the McDowell Artist Residency Program, and others. Our interview today is based on her latest book, published in 2023 with Random House, titled The 272, The Families Who Were Enslaved and Sold to build the American Catholic Church. Our guest today on the podcast is Rachel L. Swarns. She is the author of The 272, The Families Who Were Enslaved and Sold to Build the American Catholic Church. I have been following this story and her writing on this story for, you know, ever since she started writing about it in the New York Times, I've been following the scholarly conversation. So it's a thrill to have her actually on the podcast. Rachel, welcome. Oh, thanks so much for having me. So again, I said, I've been following this story, but many of our listeners may be hearing about this for the first time. So 
give us a little bit of the background. Tell us how you came to sort of write this book, get involved with this project. Right. It really was serendipitous, to be honest with you. A colleague of mine at the New York Times, a business reporter, got an email in January of 2016 from a guy, a Georgetown alum, who happened to be the CEO of a tech company, and he was pitching a story. And the story he was pitching was about a slave sale in 1838 that benefited uh, Georgetown University. And my colleague was intrigued, but uncertain, you know, because you have to remember that um, this was before the 1619 project. Ta-Nehisi Coates had written his um, Case for Reparations, the powerful piece that ran in the Atlantic, but, you know, mostly newspapers like the Times write about the here and now. And so she thought, hmm, is this a story? And it's my great fortune, honestly, that she didn't just delete the email. And she didn't delete the email because she remembered there was someone on staff who maybe might know. And she remembered that I had written a book, American Tapestry, about Michelle Obama's enslaved ancestors. And she sent the email to me. I took one look and I knew immediately that it was a story. My first book was about Michelle Obama's ancestors, and it allowed me to explore how slavery shaped American families. And I could see right away that this would allow me to do what seemed to me the next natural step, which was to explore how slavery shaped American institutions. So I jumped right in. To be honest, too, I was kind of flabbergasted, like priests, old people, what? I mean, anybody who reads this, I think is going to be shocked you know, to hear some of this stuff. And we'll get into that. Now, this is right about the time, if I'm not mistaken, when there's a lot of these universities who are exploring their roots in slavery. Did this happen before this big kind of, or was it part of the whole kind of uh, phenomenon? So it was before. Of course, Brown was first. Yeah. We're talking about 2016. Brown explored this, you know, years earlier. But Georgetown was very early in terms of what we're seeing now. And I mentioned the email that came to me in January of 2016. This alum was interested in this because of what was going on at Georgetown even before that. In the fall of 2015, students at Georgetown staged a protest They were concerned about two buildings on campus that had the names of two of the priests who were involved in the sale, which we'll talk about more. And one of those names changed. The administration at Georgetown had already been thinking about that. And they had established a working group even before my story was written, before the student protests, because they wanted to grapple with this history. Brown was first, but Georgetown was very early. Yeah, I know Princeton has done some things. Since then. Most schools now. Right now, you know, there are at least 90 universities that are wrestling and grappling with their roots in slavery. But Georgetown was very early. The heart of your book is this inspiring, to me at least, resilient family known as the Mahoney's. You know, tell us a little bit about that. Give us a quick 
sort of genealogy hitting on the big stories. I'm thinking here of, you know, uh, Anne Joyce and the indentured servant, thinking of Henry, and then maybe just say something quickly just to introduce our listeners to Anna and uh, Louisa. Right. So, you know, the first story that I wrote in 2016 was about this mass slave sale um, that was organized by the nation's, some of the nation's most powerful Catholic priests to save their prize mission project, Georgetown College, Georgetown University now. When I was thinking about how to write about this in a way that would engage readers, knowing that there are folks who, when you start talking about slavery, immediately want to say, oh, not, not, never mind, not interested, long time ago, nothing to do with me. How do you engage people? Um, and I immediately thought about a family and a family that was torn apart by this sale. And um, I settled on the Mahoney family. And the story for the Mahoney's um, starts in the 1600s. And what's really powerful about them is that their experience parallels um, the arc of the emergence of the Catholic Church in the British colonies and in the early United States and the Catholic Church's reliance on, on, on slavery. And so the story starts with Anne Joyce, who arrives in the late 1600s, a Black woman who is an indentured servant who comes here to Maryland to find her way. And as many of your listeners know, you know, she had a contract, indentured servitude usually amounted to a term of years, but her contract is burned and she's forced into slavery by Catholic gentry. She loses everything that she had hoped for, except for her story. And she tells that story to everyone around her, the white people around her and her descendants, her children and grandchildren, and they tell the story. And her descendants, and the story is that our liberty was stolen. We should have been free people. And her descendants tell that story and they resist. She has descendants who kill an overseer and are executed. She has descendants who take the Jesuits to court, who file lawsuits against the Jesuits to try to, to win their freedom. And some do at the end of that process, but most don't. Um, and so they have to find a different way. Harry Mahoney, who you mentioned, saves the church's wealth during the War of 1812 and garners a promise from the Jesuits. They promise um, in to reward him for his courage and his loyalty that he will never be sold and his family will never be sold. And that promise is broken in 1838 when his children, a number of them are shipped to Louisiana and, and two of his daughters who are very close, Louisa and Anna are separated. Yeah. And we'll come back to my last question, I think is related to the continuation of that story. Most people don't realize that the Jesuits were enslavers in Maryland. You know, the sale is kind of, you know, the heart of your story. But prior to the sale, they had enslaved people to sell. So, you know, tell me a little bit about the Jesuit side and why most people don't think of the Jesuits as planters, you know, or involved in plantations. Yeah, tell that side of the story, how that's so, all connected to Georgetown. It's so true. You know, yeah. I... 
you know, think of myself as a reasonably educated person. I have a better than average knowledge of 19th century American history from my first book about Michelle Obama's ancestors. And I had, I happened to be black and Catholic myself. I had no idea, did not know this history. The truth is that, um, you know, we often think about the Catholic church as a Northern institution, as an immigrant institution. And, and that is because enslaved people have largely been left out of the origin story that is traditionally told about the Catholic church. But the truth is that the Catholic church emerged in slaveholding states and Catholic priests relied on slavery for their sustenance and to build the underpinnings, the foundations of the Catholic church. So priests who relied on slavery built, um, you know, established the first archdiocese, built the first cathedral, built the nation's first Catholic institution of higher learning, Georgetown. Priests who operated a plantation and sold people established the first Catholic seminary. It was how they sustained themselves and how they, you know, expanded. And it is history that it was known, you know, and it was known by historians, but not at all widely known by the general public. So specifically, there were Jesuits who were. I mean, they weren't just there for spiritual reasons, they were running plantations and the money generated from the plantations were going to, in your specific case, Georgetown and and these other institutions. That's right. So the Jesuits arrive in Maryland in 1634. British colony established in part as a refuge for Catholics who are persecuted in England. Initially, they rely, as most people do in Maryland, on an indentured workforce. By the early 1700s, that has shifted almost entirely to an economy based on slave labor. And the Jesuits make that transition um, along with, you know, other large planters. And they end up being the builders of the Catholic Church in the United States, early United States, and among the largest enslavers in Maryland at the same time. And they were interesting in that they did not, unlike some white people at the time, they did not view the people that they enslaved as just brutes or animals. They believed that they were human beings who had souls. And not only that, that they, as priests, had an obligation to nurture and tend to those souls, Mm -hmm. even as they bought and sold their bodies. It's um, a conundrum for us today. So, you know, we often hear in sort of academic historical scholarship, you often hear these kind of uh, Southern, deep Southern, mostly Protestant, evangelical, some cases, uh, slaveholders who are making these, you know, like people like John Calhoun and George Fitzhugh and others. And this is in the decades leading up to the Civil War. They're suggesting, well, we we feed our slave people, we clothe them, we, we care for them, we preach the gospel to them, <laughs> whatever. But the Jesuits are doing this and making these cases much earlier than, say, 1830s, oh, or yeah. For sure. The first yeah. documented record of Jesuit slaveholding is 1717. Yeah. It's important to note that 
there were voices all along the way. Catholic priests all along the way who raised questions, objections, and protested this practice. And this is important because, as many people know, um, you know that when you talk about uh, slavery, there are folks who will say, "Oh, don't bring your 21st century, you know, yeah. morality to this history." It was legal. It was the times. Yeah. It certainly was legal. It certainly was the times. But there were priests who had concerns and raised questions, and they wrestled with this. Which, as a historian, for me. I'm speaking as a historian, right? Not a kind of moral person, <laughs> but as, as right. a historian, those arguments are much more effective, right? You know, especially against the critique of, well, modern day morality. Right. Opposing, well, let's look at the actual people who lived in the period. Right. So critiquing. I want to get to this, the sort of, I don't know if it's fair to say the complicated relationship between the Jesuits and slavery. But before I ask that, let's get to the sale. And we still haven't talked about Milady. I'm blanking on his first name, uh, Father Milady. Yeah, and his kind of I looked at him as kind of his henchman, uh, McSherry, who were the ones who kind of orchestrated this sale. And I don't know if anyone's commented on this in the interviews you've done, but I see this. You know, historians we talk about this tension, right? Edmund Morgan first introduced it in the 17th century Virginia American slavery, American freedom like how they're so intricately connected. And I see Milady as a deeply ambitious, some sense morally problematic for a Jesuit kind of person. And his climb, his success, which is, you know, he gets himself into all kinds of problems and, you know, but it's, it's parallel with the enslaved and the eventual sale. His fail, many cases, failed attempts at rising are always associated with enslavement. So tell me, why was it necessary for Milady, McSherry, Georgetown to make this sale in 1838, essentially selling 272 total enslaved people to uh, a actually Louisiana congressman named Henry Johnson? That's right. So, so tell me a little bit about. These characters, you know, Milady, McSherry, and their kind of the way they kind of wanted to advance what they thought was a moral good, the Catholic Church, by using the enslaved. It's such a good question. I think, you know, Thomas Milady um, was such an interesting person. He was, in many ways, actually a visionary because the reason why he wanted to do this was that he could see that this church, this church rooted in plantations, uh, rooted in the countryside, was not the future. He was a member of a new generation, an American-born generation of, of Jesuits. He had known slavery up close. His father had enslaved people. And, and he could see that actually uh, the future might be something else. He looked north and saw the waves of immigrants pouring into the cities, Catholic immigrants, Irish immigrants, and said, you know, the future is there. This, this rural church thing is not the future. We need to expand. We need to be prepared. We need to open colleges 
that will educate these people. And he was absolutely right. He was right. It's just that the strategy that he took would exert a terrible, terrible cost because the challenge that he had, he was right, but how to do it? And the question was money, plain and simple. Milady was um, an early and influential college president of Georgetown. He had a building campaign, expanded the campus, left it deeply in debt. Um, the Jesuits themselves had mismanaged their finances for a long time. And so by the time um, Milady is proposing these ideas to Rome, I mean, Georgetown is in such bad shape, they think it might close. The province is a, you know, a fiscal mess. And the only way forward, he argues, is to sell off their assets. 272 men, women, and children to save Georgetown and, and to build um, what he could see as a future, institutions in the North. I get the impression from reading your book, Milady comes across as this kind of, I mean, how do you balance his kind of ambition to kind of rise and stuff with it's it does sound like he may have legitimately cared in a kind of spiritual sense you know for the future of god's true church right whatever the catholic church is it possible to sort of tease out like how much of this was his own careerism versus how much was you know i love this church and i want to serve god and however deceived he might be about that we can leave our listeners to decide does he care about the future of the church or is the church just a kind of place no. for him to like become a prominent figure? I think it's both. Yes. He, one of the things about Milady, which is interesting is that he clearly had great charisma. You know, you're reading these 19th century letters and I got to tell you, his personality just crackles on the page. I mean, he is just a force. There's no doubt about that. And I think he did care about the church. I think a good contrast is Father Joseph Carberry, also someone who American born from Southern Maryland, from lots of relatives who were slaveholders, but he saw something different. He was in charge of uh, the St. Inigo's plantation where a number of the Mahoney family members lived. And when he looked at the enslaved, he saw humanity. He saw capacity. He saw skill. And so he writes, for instance, about an enslaved man who built a windmill and marvels at the craftsmanship. He writes about the faith and devotion of the enslaved people. When the uh, Jesuits complain that the plantations aren't producing enough, Carberry says, well, I mean, maybe it, people might work harder if we paid them. And he develops an experiment on the plantation where he says, okay, I'm going to give families some acres of land. You work it the way you want to work it, and we share the profits. And when a Jesuit leader came from Ireland to visit the plantation after a decade or so away, he marveled at the transformation of that plantation. Carberry was one of those lonely voices who protested this sale. He knew and worried. He knew what this Louisiana was like, different, more brutal form of slavery. He worried about families being torn apart. He had white people and black people praying that it wouldn't happen. He went to Georgetown to protest. 
And when he could do nothing more, when it was clear that the sale would happen, he urged people to run when the slave traders came. So two very different personalities and very different takes on, you know, how to deal with this. One of the things I love about your book is the way in which the book has a clear kind of moral message to it, but you don't surrender or don't give up on that kind of complexity, right? That's, that there are Carberries. There are, you know, now, now again, some would say even Carberry is like still enslaved well, people, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> and actually, Carberry yeah. is, you know, of course, as a journalist, as a writer, as a professor, what interests me is the complexity, right? Yeah. That's that's what life is. Yeah. Carberry is a perfect example of the complexity because on the one hand, he is the guy who goes to Georgetown and says the sale shouldn't happen. He is the guy who encourages people to run when the slave yeah. traders come. At the same time, and the two sisters, right? One of them does manage to escape. And I thought, Carberry, wow, he's the hero. Yeah. And then when Louisa comes back, he welcomes her and her mother yeah. back into slavery yeah. where yeah. they remain. <laughs> yeah. Again, it's this balance between the 19th century world and right. he's still an enslaver. He's guy. still an enslaver. I think. And also, but the nuance again, within that is what's fascinating. That's, that's right. what the story is. Yeah. That's right. And he, I think there were some who opposed selling people, right? The idea of tearing families apart, possibly the idea of this particularly brutal regime of, of slavery in the deep South, which everyone knew about, yeah. but enslaving people, the church didn't prohibit it or ban it. Yeah. And, and Carberry may have felt that he was a fairly enlightened, which he was, you know, person in terms of this. Now, Milady, just a quick follow up here. I mean, this gets to the complicated nature of kind of the Jesuit, the hierarchy and everything. I'm blanking on his name, Jan Ruth. Ruthen, yes. The, the leader of the Jesuits the leader worldwide. Of the global leader of the Jesuits, if you want to call him that. He put certain kind of moral guard posts, or I don't know what the best word is. He says, yeah, sell these enslaved people to Louisiana, but don't do X. And it seems like Milady kind of ignores that. Tell, tell me a little bit more about that. Right. So, you know, as I mentioned, there is no prohibition on uh, buying and selling Black people up to this point, right? But there were concerns about this, again, about particularly about tearing families apart. And the leader of the Jesuits worldwide even said, you know, like there's a great quote um, where he says, hey, you know, we don't want to lose our souls in this process. I mean, so he was worried that, you know, this wasn't just like, you know, the logistics of it. There was like mortal sin here that they might have to worry about. So he set out some conditions. Families shouldn't be separated. He didn't want the money used for paying debts. And um, those conditions were broken. Yeah. As well as, as you've already mentioned, the promise to Henry Mahoney. I'm not going to go into that story. I want people to go get this book. They can see how it's fleshed out. But he really does kind of, you know, flees into the woods with a bunch of money to save the. That's a great story. And he's promised his family would never be broken up. And 
that promise is broken as well. Our time is running out here, but I would encourage the listeners here to read this book too, to learn something about what is commonly referred to by historians as the kind of internal slave trade. These two sisters are, well, Louisa was supposed to go, but she fled and thus did not go to Louisiana. So Louisa and um, Anna Mahoney are broken up. Anna goes to Louisiana, a much more uh, oppressive slave regime. Great stuff on New Orleans as a center of this slave trade and the sugar cane. And, you know, I encourage you to pick up the book and learn more about that. The slave trade ends in 1808 in the United States, the transatlantic slave trade. But most of us don't, you know, historians know about this, but most people don't realize just how brutal this internal slave trade was as as the enslaved were sold from the sort of north of the south. So, to speak. so you know, the Chesapeake. So, so pick that up. I wanted to, you know, develop that question a little more, but I think it's good that our listeners will will read that. I'm really interested. I think a lot of our listeners, though, are interested in the sort of faith, Catholic faith dimension, because I think one of the striking things about this book is the way in which the enslaved men and women, or at least some of them, remain faithful Catholics, uh, not only after they're sold. I mean, Louisiana is a kind of Catholic province, and they have opportunities, I guess, limited opportunities to, to worship. But even generations, like they remain sort of faithful Catholics. They say committed to the church that has not only enslaved them, but, but then sold them, broke up their families, broke their promises, and so forth. How do you sort that out? So an interview with you in political, and since you already said you yourself are Catholic, I'd love to hear how how this has affected your kind of face too, right? I mean, if you're willing to talk about it. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I think that the story is a story of heartbreak, of course, but it is also a story of family and faith. And that I didn't know either. Actually, when um, Anna and, and the others are shipped off um, to Louisiana, they end up on a plantation where actually they don't have much access to the Catholic Church. And after the Civil War, thousands of Black people leave the Catholic Church. The Catholic Church um, was a segregated church after Civil War, something else I didn't know. And in New Orleans, thousands of people left. But many of these families stayed. And in fact, researching them, the archival records, the, the sacramental records are really helpful because they continue to marry and baptize their children. And, and not only that, I mean, some of them become lay leaders. There are even some religious leaders, and they work to make the church more reflective of and responsive to Black Catholics and and more true to, you know, the ideals of universality that the church espouses. And, you know, as a black woman who happens to be Catholic, um, you know, that's that's inspiring to me. I mean, this is obviously I, I mentioned not not history that I know I'm a practicing Catholic. I'm doing this research, um, you know, while I'm going to mass and this is a church that I, I love personally. So it's, it's been quite something for me, but I think that these 
families saw this church as bigger than priests um, who betrayed and sold them. It was their church too. You know, I think about, you know, I come from an evangelical background and I, I often think about these things, you know, especially in light of the way my faith community in some ways has embraced Donald Trump and, you know, the word evangelical has now become a, but, you know, I, there's still something that's, you know, about the faith, right? That my faith is not tied to a political agenda. Or, right. You know, right. and I think a lot of people miss that in the press and, and so forth. So I don't know. It's not a direct comparison, obviously, you know, because most of my ancestors were doing the oppressing, you know, or my spiritual ancestors. <laughs> right, 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 right. So, so right. It's, it's maybe it's not a good, it's not a clean analogy, but, you know, people ask me, you know, how do you stay a Christian knowing what you know? And, it's hard to answer that question sometimes. So this book and, and even your personal kind of testimony here says, well, you know, maybe some, there's something bigger than just the right mess, but yeah. So last question, first of all, who are Melissa Kemp and Jeremy Alexander? Tell me about this meeting that they have and the implications of this meeting in 2016, because this brings the story kind of full circle. Right. What interests me, as someone who who writes about slavery is how how we live with it today you know its legacies in in our time and so i very much from that very first story was interested in these families contemporary families the descendants and so the story begins and ends with the descendants of anna and and louisa who uh, find each other um, after my story is published. The first story is published in 2016. Melissa Kemp is a descendant of Louisa, who stayed in Maryland. Jeremy Alexander is a descendant of Anna, who um, was shipped off to Louisiana. You know, Melissa's family ends up doing a DNA test after my story runs. He had done one years ago. There's a match. They find each other on email. They've got a phone call. And Melissa says, you know, I think that this has to do with this slave sale that you might have read about in the New York Times. And he said, slave sale? She said, yeah, the one that benefited Georgetown. And he nearly passes out because he's like, I'm, I'm sitting at Georgetown right now. He's, he's an employee at Georgetown. You know, it really knocked him off his feet. And, and the two of them have joined other descendants in pressing Georgetown and the Jesuits uh, to address this history. And the institutions are have taken some significant steps, descendants say not big enough, but certainly significant steps to try to grapple with this. Yeah, and you address this way Georgetown has responded in the book. Again, it's also fascinating. I can't remember about Melissa Kemp, but Jeremy Alexander continues to be a kind of active Catholic, you know, he went to That's Catholic right. schools. Um, Catholic um, I can't remember schools. Melissa. She, she continued on in the faith, but yeah. Yeah. Melissa's family, it's interesting in that they kept Ann Joyce's story a lot. That story of okay. Ann Joyce remained in the yeah. family well into the 20th century. And wow. her family remained entwined with the Jesuits, worked for the Jesuits up okay. into the 1980s. 
Um, so, you know, it's, it's really, really fascinating, but you're right. Jeremy remains deeply, deeply Catholic to this day. Yeah. So we have been talking to Rachel Swarn. She's the author of the 272, the families who were enslaved and sold to build the American Catholic church, beautiful writing, well-researched. You might want to, you know, switch from journalism to history. You know, <laughs> you've written two books now, right? Um, any any career plans, career changes? Ah, uh, you know, <laughs> no, I said is, to my husband, maybe a PhD in history is like this uh, is this is a this is a, a model for the kind of you know I, I hate that term popular history, but history for the a wider audience. And yeah, a wider yeah. audience. You know, sometimes you just need a journalist to be able to do this kind of stuff because we historians tend to get too deep into the weeds. You know, go pick up a copy of this book if you're interested in if you're you know, you don't really have much interest in Catholicism, but you're interested in the history, uh, early American history or slavery. I know a lot of our listeners that are going to buy this book because they're really interested in the history of the Catholic Church and religious history and the Jesuits. It's worth your time. So thanks so much, Rachel, for coming on. Oh, it was a pleasure. Thank you. episode. Rachel Swarns has produced a very readable, I I almost read this thing in one sitting. It just reads like a novel in some cases. And again, it's all built upon some of her own work, but also the scholarship of the slavery project at Georgetown, the Georgetown Center for the Study of Slavery and its Legacies, which is directed by a Georgetown history professor, Adam Rothman. So here's a wonderful example of a project, a story in which the scholars are involved, the journalists are involved. And I think this book has gone a long way to kind of writing some of the wrongs in the history of the Catholic Church and the history of Georgetown. You can read more about how the Catholic Church, the Jesuits and Georgetown responded to all of this work. But again, so much we didn't cover in here. This this interview just kind of was the tip of the iceberg in terms of the stories in here. I wish we could have talked a lot more about Louisa and Anna. We talked about their descendants there at the end. You know, if you want to know about the internal slave trade, this is the book to read, you know, the the breakup of families, the psychological kind of enslavement that these enslaved people faced. A lot of interesting stuff about early Maryland, the Jesuits. Again, go out and get a copy of the 272. So thanks again for listening. You know, I don't know when you're listening to this podcast, but we tried to do an episode every week here in the summer of 2023, and it just didn't work out largely because we had some financial things to deal with at currentpub.com 
you know, bottom line, we just couldn't afford to do an episode every week. I do have guests lined up through the fall. Uh, you know, I'd love to keep going with this podcast in terms of weekly interviews, weekly releases, but we really need your support. So again, I hate begging for funds, but if you want to see this podcast and everything that we're doing at Current Prosper, head over there, currentpub.com, click the red membership button and become a member of Current so we can keep churning out this kind of incredible content and have these kind of incredible guests on. That's all for today. As always, thanks for listening and may your way of improvement lead home. The Way of Improvement podcast is recorded via Zoom. Original music by Overholt. The co-founder of the podcast, who is now off doing bigger and better things, is Drew Durley Hermeling. And our producer is Casey Lehman. She is out of Nashville. I, John Fia, am your host. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you, with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Overdraft fees are just the worst. Get up to 200 in fee-free overdraft with the Chime checking account. Sign up today at Chime.com slash Goals24. Banking services and debit card provided by the Bancorp Bank N.A. or Stripe Bank N.A. members FDIC. Spot me eligibility requirements and overdraft limits apply.